Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, a new bill would change the way the state hospital is overseen. And if Arizona had a smell, what would it be? We asked you and we got some great answers. But first, it's expected to be another busy week at the state capitol as floor debate and votes continue and committees start taking up bills from the other chamber. With me, as he is every Monday during the legislative session to talk about what to expect this week in the state legislature, is Howie Fisher of Capitol media services. And Howie, let's start with a bill coming up for a vote this week, which deals with licensing doctors who are from other countries. What exactly would this measure do? Well, right now, doctors from other countries can be licensed, but it's sort of up to the medical board. There's a lot more uh, gray area in there. This specifically says that if you meet certain qualifications and you're from certain listed countries, and I'm not sure how they came up with that list, that you're entitled to a medical license. It specifically directs the medical board to issue you a license. So if you're from Canada, if you're from Israel, if you're from Singapore, you get a license. Uh, and why those countries? I'm not sure. I'm hoping that somebody did some research in terms of the medical training, in terms of what the licensure is in those countries and whether it's, it's comparable. But this is of course designed to deal with the issue that uh, we need certain doctors, at least in certain areas. Right. So, Howie, I want to ask you also about a bill that Governor Hobbs vetoed late last week, also dealing with uh, physicians, but more in the, the scope of practice realm. Is that right? Well, this gets into a longstanding fight. We have in Arizona medical doctors, MDs, and osteopaths, DOs, who are considered, I want to say the top. I mean, you've got some subcategories in there, real brain surgery and such. There are a lot of other medical professions. There are optometrists who look at eyes, who are not quite ophthalmologists, who are in fact are medical doctors. We have certified nurse practitioners. We have physician's assistants. We have dental hygienists, all of whom do certain things within their profession. Right now, their scope of practice is limited by statute. Now, if they wanted to get a, an expansion of that, in other words, to say that we can do certain kinds of procedures. For example, the dentist came in a couple of years ago and said, we should be able to do Botox and we should be able to do facial fillers and get rid of the wrinkles in your forehead. Well, you go through a two-step procedure. The first step is what they call a sunrise hearing, where you have this intense hearing where they look at what are your, your qualifications? What are the needs? Uh, is it economically viable? Uh, do we really need more people doing, doing Botox? And then you go to the legislature for the change in the law. The bill that the governor vetoed would have gotten rid of the first step under the argument that the legislature is still going to have to go through it. And uh, Senator T.J. Shope said, why do we need that extra step? The governor vetoed it, saying we need the additional protections. But she also recognized that sometimes the doctors, the medical doctors, will use this as uh, a way of, of tripping up these other groups because quite frankly, the history in this, this state has been medical doctors like to protect their turf. So this has been a turf war that's been going on for years. I remember when I came here in the 1980s, mm. they were fighting over the fact of whether optometrists can in fact use 
certain medications to dilate your pupils so that they can take a look and that they can get a better idea of what, what your vision is. This is a perennial fight and it's going to continue to go on, but it, it also fits into the issue of, do you need people? Where do you need people? Uh, Ava Birch, who is a senator from, two, from, excuse me, from Mesa, said, wait a second, you're saying these people don't have qualifications. Well, sometimes having any doctor may be better than having no doctor at all, which is really an issue, a lot of it in underserved in rural areas. Right. All right, Howie, it wouldn't be a talk about the legislature if we didn't talk at least a little bit about election procedures. Let me ask you about a bill dealing with what used to be known as the permanent early voting list, now known as the active early voting list. What kinds of changes are lawmakers thinking about now? As you pointed out, you know, the PEVIL, permanent early voting list, went away um, last year under the idea that you shouldn't have people continue to receive early ballots who aren't using them. And what the new law, the active early voting list said was if you don't use your early ballot for two consecutive cycles, in other words, if you used it in 2022, if you don't use it in 2024 and 2026, you don't get one in 2028. This seeks to curb it back. So if you don't use it in one cycle, let's say you go directly to the polls, or let's say you decide there's nothing I'm interested in voting on. Now you've got to sign up entirely again for the early voting list. And, and this comes down to an interesting question of, is this an effort to simply clean up the voter rolls? Because it doesn't take them off the rolls, it just simply takes them off the early voting list. Or is this an effort to make it harder for people to vote early if they don't remember to do it every year? And obviously, as we saw uh, with even this past election, there's a whole lot of paranoia over early voting, mail voting. And there are probably some political uh, machinations behind it in terms of do we want all these people voting early? All right. So, Howie, let me ask you finally about a bill that supporters say would maybe diversify the ranks of the legislature itself, basically trying to get people who have different kinds of jobs maybe to be able to run for office? Well, the legislature, you, it's supposed to be a part-time legislature. The whole idea of our crafters in 1912 was to say, you come, you help make some laws. Three and a half months later, you go back to your regular job, you go back to your farm, you go back to your company. Well, a couple of things have happened. A, the legislative session tends to last six months. And B, even when they're not in session, there are a lot of special things going on. The other part of the problem, of course, that's connected with that is if you have a regular job, you can't run for the legislature. I don't know a lot of companies say, oh, sure, you know, Mark, go ahead and take some time off from the radio station there and go spend six months down at the Capitol and your job will be waiting for you when you come back. Right. It tends not to happen. This bill says your employer has to offer you time off, unpaid, but still has to give you time off if you are serving in the legislature. The idea is to get more, quote unquote, common people in the legislature. Now, we don't this isn't like Congress where we're up to our you know what and lawyers. But what we've got is a lot of real estate agents, a lot of insurance agents, uh, a lot of retirees, uh, a lot of people who have a spouse who is working who don't need that particular income. And so the question is, do we really have a balanced legislature? Uh, the bill did, in fact, get out of one of the chambers. Interestingly enough. It was the Republicans who were voting for the bill and the Democrats who were voting against it. And one would think that painting with a very broad brush here, it would be the Democrats who'd say, we need more common people in the legislature. But they decided this wasn't an idea they were willing to support. So now it's over at the other chamber and we will see what happens. As I say, it's a fascinating concept. 
And I can say I'm, I certainly see some merit in the idea that maybe we do need a broader cross-section of the legislature since these 90 people are supposed to represent a broader cross-section of Arizona. And I don't believe right now that that's true. Interesting. All right. We'll keep our eyes on all of that. That is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Howie, thank you as always. Have a great morning. The Arizona State Hospital has been criticized pretty much since it opened in the late 1800s. To be fair, state mental hospitals don't get high marks almost anywhere. They are charged with protecting some of society's most vulnerable people and often some of the most difficult. But in Arizona, there's an obvious challenge on top of the rest. Since 1974, the agency that runs ASH is also the agency that oversees it. It's the fox guarding the hen house. The Department of Health Services runs the hospital and is responsible for its oversight. But now there is a bill making its way through the state legislature aimed at changing that. Senate Bill 1710 would create an independent board to oversee the hospital, and it has the backing of at least one former DHS director who has firsthand experience trying to do both of these jobs. Will Humble is executive director of the Arizona Public Health Association now. He ran the agency from 2009 to 2015 under then-Republican Governor Jan Brewer, where he faced scrutiny over his oversight of hospital at times. He told me this inherent conflict is a big potential problem that should change. I can remember the first week I was on the job as the interim director of the agency. I suddenly realized it should have been intuitive, but I suddenly realized, holy smokes, I'm in charge of regulating the Arizona State Hospital and I'm charge of running it, too. Hmm. That's a bad conflict. It's an institutional conflict. Mm -hmm. And I can remember early on, uh, bringing my licensing chief, her name was Mary Wiley, in, and I said, you know, you guys treat the Arizona State Hospital like you treat anybody else. Pretend they're banner, you know, treat them like you would anyone else. I don't want you guys to feel bad if there's bad things out there. If you think it, you don't want to get me in trouble or anything like that, forget it. Just do what you would do with anybody because I want to know if there's bad deficiencies out there or anything we need to fix, the only way I'm going to know that is if your surveyors go out there and tell me that. And 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 we did. We wrote ourselves up big time. One time uh, we wrote ourselves up with their called condition level findings. Mm-hmm. Our, our surveyors on the fourth floor who work under contract to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services wrote up a deficiency list. I, was, I think it might have been 100 pages long. Mm-hmm. It was really long. And it took a long time to make all those corrections. So I'm telling you that story to say it can work right with the right person in charge who understands that they can't fall for this institutional conflict and try to preserve themselves Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. their career. Just do the right thing. So it can be done right. I believe that we did an honest job of that during my tenure. But I've also seen that it can be done in a way that is not right. And that's what I believe we saw during the previous administration where there were obviously some – I mean there were suicides inside the state hospital. And the surveyor staff, the licensing team at the state health department comes in with no deficiencies noted hmm. you know, on the complaint investigation. And I'm like, like you, you can't have – if you've got suicides happening – uh, there are deficient. There are deficient practices led to that suicide. Hmm. It can't be no deficiencies noted. That's like there's no way. So it shows you that, you know, under the wrong kind of director with the, the wrong kind of directive to the licensing team, mm-hmm. you can have 
a lack of institutional checks and balances. And you can end up with, you know, a state hospital that's not making the corrections because they know the director's got their back. Yeah. I mean, when you were a director, you came under fire by the media, by others, you know, and had to, as you say, address some of these big deficiencies that go back a long way. Like the the state hospital has always been a challenging institution. Give us a sense of 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 how you address those things, how it is that you look back on it now and think about the kind of conflict that you faced. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I told my surveying team, if you're going to go in on a complaint investigation, I don't want to know about it in advance. Um, and I, I'd want it to be clear that I don't have my hand on the scale here. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, when they would write up a long list of deficiencies, the state hospital administrators and would come into my office and say, I don't think licensing is treating us fairly. Look at what they're doing. And I, I'd say to them, look, you show me something on here that isn't true and I'll listen. Mm-hmm. But if it's true and it's on this list, then fix it. And you can see reports on Channel 15 where there's a whole bunch of stories on that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was also fortunate to have a governor, Governor Brewer, who would be like, I know how hard it is to run that hospital. And, Will, I trust that you're going to fix it. But if that kind of support doesn't exist on the governor's office level – then you have a situation where there's a temptation by the licensing team to go easy on the state hospital because they don't want to get their director that they like in trouble. There's also a level of secrecy with the state hospital, right? Kind of because of the nature of it. But, I mean, yeah. the media can't get in there. Like, There's no other oversight at all. Well, <laughs> let's do talk about transparency for a minute. Like, yeah. There's HIPAA there, you know, there's there are protections for talking about individual patients. And that's like a steadfast contract that you have with your patients and family members. But that's not transparency. Mm -hmm. Like transparency means giving family members access and allowing them to come into the, you know, to the meetings, allowing journalists and lawmakers and others to take tours of the facility, um, responding to public records requests promptly. You know, those are all things that build accountability in a system. And Mm -hmm. the moment you start restricting that kind of transparency, it ends up reducing the accountability. And when you lose accountability, you you lose the quality of patient care. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about the bill itself. So if an independent board was running the oversight kind of branch of the state hospital instead of the people at DHS, tell me a little bit about what you think that would solve. Like, who could be on a board like that? How would that address this issue just by essentially just the system set up, like being separate entities? Yeah. At the at the highest level, it's that you'd separate the operational control from the regulation. That builds out and gives the right structure so that you can have honest regulation of the facility. Mm-hmm. The way the bill's written, it would be a five-member board appointed by the governor and the persons that you have to, certain qualifications to be on that board, you have to have experiences managing those types of facilities. But there's also protections so that there's no conflict of interest. So there's a lot of checks and balances built into that board. But the key really in the end mm. is making sure that the right people are on the oversight board because this isn't going to work. If you've got people who want to just be on the board to be on a board, you got to have people on the board that are willing to put in the time that yeah. it takes to do a good job to ensure that the care is is correct and the transparency is there and that the accountability is in place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 
This is just one kind of piece of the pie when it comes to Ash, right? Like the the oversight part of it. There are lots of challenges to running this hospital, as you know, and as you've alluded to here. Beyond this kind of solution for Ash, what other challenges does the hospital face? What other things do you think need to be addressed? I think the very first thing, if I was, you know, during this transition, the very first thing that I think needs to be done is to have a real honest-to-goodness independent review of the operations out at the state hospital. So if I were in that director job right now and new in the position, as we know, it's just an interim because of what happened to Dr. Cullen. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. I would ask the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to send out a real CMS team from San Francisco to do an independent evaluation of the state hospital Hmm. and then work with those deficiencies. Mm And then I would want to build some new policies and procedures about transparency and about responding to records requests, about getting information to family members, to being responsive to family members who want to make changes to a patient's treatment medications or other parts of the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. All those things have been lacking. If you talk to stakeholders, those are the things that they are most frustrated about is they have a family member receiving services and the treatment team is not respecting or even listening to the family members as they talk about the history for that patient and what they know works. Hmm. All right. Lots to tackle then. Will Humble, Executive Director of the Arizona Public Health Association, former head of DHS, joining us. Will, thanks as always. Take care. We also reached out to the Arizona Department of Health Services about this bill. They sent us a statement saying, quote, ADHS cannot comment on matters under consideration by policymakers. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, the works of children's author Roald Dahl are getting an update for modern times, removing certain words that could be deemed offensive. I was like, okay, I see what you're trying to do here. You're trying to make things more inclusive and and make them better. But the more I thought about it, the more uneasy I felt about it. We'll hear from a high school librarian on the potential dangers of this kind of revision. Former Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich is facing a mounting pile of complaints to the state bar against him after his successor, Democrat Chris Mays, revealed that he sat on evidence his own staff had uncovered that debunked election fraud conspiracies. Instead, he released an interim report that poured into what he called serious vulnerabilities in our election system, even though his own investigators had debunked hundreds of reports of fraud and found no evidence of malfeasance. It all happened as he was trying to court former President Donald Trump's backing in the GOP primary for the race for Senate, which he did not get. And now the editorial board of the Arizona Republic declares it cannot go unpunished. Elvia Diaz is the editorial page editor, and she joins me now to talk more about it. Good morning, Elvia. Good morning. Okay, so I want to begin with a little bit of the backstory here. Obviously, this was a big story over the last week or so here in Arizona and and really across the country. But why did the board decide to write this editorial? Like we should remind folks like the board includes conservatives and liberals. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is something that we have said many times before, you know, that we believed Mark Bronovich was using his office or misusing his office for his own political purposes, because let's let's not forget that he was running for U.S. Senate at that time. So, yeah, that was absolutely a discussion that we had. Like, what what else can we possibly say that that we haven't said in the past? But these are new revelations kind Mm -hmm. of proving what we suspected all along, that he was just 
just suppressing that information from his office. And we felt it was important to hold him responsible. I mean, he's he's not in office anymore, as you mentioned in the intro. He lost the, the election, but, you know, he needs to be held accountable for, I mean, we're still facing so many people that believe that the election was stolen uh, precisely because of people like him. So we need to restore confidence in our elected officials and he destroyed that with his office. So we feel it is important for Arizonans to begin to trust um, their elected officials and how are we going to do it if we just let people go unpunished? Yeah. Okay. So I want to take a step back in time here for a minute. Remind us kind of of the implications of Brnovich's actions at the time. Like we were in the midst of sort of unending claims of election fraud. Officials were trying to bat them down constantly, it felt like. And election officials were facing death threats from some Trump supporters who, you know, thought that they had stolen the 2020 election from him. That, that's exactly it. I mean, uh, Brnovich himself and, and talking to one of the uh, conservative uh, Trump aides and one of the podcast at the time, you know, he was mentioning that the audit, which often we call it the front audit or the crown show at the time, that that, that that was important to, you know, find exactly what happened and restore integrity to the elections. Those, those were his words uh, at the time. And so it was fueling into that idea that the uh, 2020 election uh, was rigged against President Donald Trump. Uh, And so the implication is is precisely that, you know, just adding to the fact, I mean, this is that guy that that had information to the contrary. He had information, his own investigators were spending thousands of hours. Now we found more than 10,000 hours, Mm -hmm. you know, investigating and found no evidence of fraud. Yet he was contributing to the lie uh, essentially. And so then you have, you know, the election deniers believing that, my goodness, if the attorney general is saying that and he has that kind of uh, privileged information, so it must be true. And then you mentioned that as well. You know, election officials were facing death threats and all kinds of other threats, which, I mean, they're, they're still they're, they're still doing. So the implications were huge and still are. So that, that's why that's why we also felt it was important to keep talking about this. Because, I mean, news go at the, sp- at the speed of light nowadays. Yeah. And we journalists move with the news at the speed of light. And we write something and, you know, the, there's so many other things that we're writing about that we forget about one thing. This, we don't want to forget about Mark Brnovich. And so when we were writing at the time, uh, there were eight complaints. By the end of the day, they were like, 12 and then by the following morning there were 18 and you know this morning i don't know how many how many they are so mm-hmm. no we cannot forget about what he did and how he misused his office you say in this uh, editorial that his fatal flaw was a lack of core values essentially and that this cannot go unpunished what do you mean by that what should happen well, you know, there are at least 18 complaints with the State Bar of Arizona. At the very least, you know, he should be disbarred, meaning that he will not be able to practice law because he, what, what he did is just not acceptable for any politician. But then he is, he is a lawyer. He was uh, the attorney general for the state of Arizona. So we, we had a discussion about 
whether he should face, uh, you know, criminal charges as some elected officials and others had suggested. We didn't go that far because clearly we don't know mm-hmm. um, if it warrants that. So we absolutely believe there should be an investigation. And so we hope at the very least that the state bar investigates this and and takes the proper action and and most importantly again i go back to the confidence of the people of of arizona we need to hold politicians accountable especially in a position like that i mean it is the core mission of that office is to protect people from crime and fraud Mm-hmm. I mean, when we say that he lost his values, I mean, he was so distracted. I mean, who knows what happened in that office while he was trying to get elected by contributing to the lie. All right. That is Elvia Diaz, the editorial page editor for the Arizona Republic, joining us as she does on Mondays. Elvia, thank you for coming on and talking us through this one. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. The fight over Rio Verde Foothills water supply continues as Maricopa County supervisors late last week rejected a proposed plan from Scottsdale. The city wants to obtain water from a third party, then treat it and pipe it to Rio Verde. The Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, though, rejected that and instead wants to see an agreement between Scottsdale and water utility company Epcor. Under that plan, the company would provide water to the city and the city would get it to Rio Verde. Here to explain how the talks are going and how close we might be to an agreement or not is Arizona Republic reporter Sasha Hupka. Sasha, good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning, and thank you for having me. So why did the supervisors say thanks but no thanks to what Scottsdale had proposed? Well, the important thing to understand about Scottsdale's plan is even though the two plans might sound similar, Scottsdale's plan involves the county being directly involved in getting water to these people. And Scottsdale's plan also comes with stipulations. One of them is that they wanted the county to try to implement some sort of building moratorium in the area. Um, And all of those things are basically the reason why county supervisors say this plan won't fly. The problem is that the plan that county supervisors would like to see implemented is a plan that Scottsdale likely isn't going to agree to. City officials there already evaluated that idea last fall and internal emails show that they rejected it because they had concerns about growth continuing unchecked in the Rio Verde foothills area. What is EPCOR saying? Like, does the company say that it could, in theory, do the Maricopa County plan if that was what everybody agreed to? The company says that they've discussed this potential interim solution with the county and with Scottsdale last fall, and that it does have water resources that could help in this situation. But the company never submitted a formal plan to county or city officials. And the sense I get is mostly that they're trying to stay out of it a little bit. They have a long-term service application in with the Arizona Corporation Commission, which is the body that regulates that company. And because of that, uh, EPCOR's spokesperson told me they're really not involved at this point with these interim solution discussions. And they really don't have much perspective to offer on it. Right. So EPCOR thinking maybe it could be part of the long term solution, but that, as the name implies, doesn't really do much for the interim. Um, Does it seem as though Scottsdale, the city of Scottsdale and Maricopa County can maybe get over their name calling and frustration with each other and come to a deal here? 
Well, that's kind of the open question. I mean, these are negotiations that only really just became official a few weeks back in mid-February. And that only came after a whole series of really informal talks that were facilitated by a state lawmaker, David Cook. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we've seen so far is that up to that point, neither party was willing to come to the table. And now that they have, they don't really seem to be on the same page. So I think the question is, you know, is somebody going to be willing to give and kind of get on board with one of these plans if, you know, they're willing to tweak it a little bit. And right now, it doesn't really seem like there's much chance of that happening. But this is also something that, you know, the situation has been fluid, it's been changing. And I think that that's something that could change in a matter of weeks, particularly as we see summer getting closer and closer. These people don't have a stable water supply. And I know that the people up there are very concerned about what's going to happen when water is scarcer in the summer months. Right. I mean, that's obviously an important component of the story to remember, which is that people who are living in this community are are running out of water and, as you say, don't have a stable supply. Do you get the sense that there's consensus in Rio Verde foothills about what an interim solution might be? There there hasn't been in the past. Is, Is there a consensus starting to form at all? I don't think there's a consensus starting to form in terms of backing one plan or another. Um, What we've seen is that residents have been very split over a long-term solution, and that split has really continued down into these interim talks. And it also impacts who residents blame for their plight. Some residents would say that they live on county land. This is the county's responsibility, and the county's the one that's being the problem here. Others would put the blame on Scottsdale and say that, Scottsdale Mayor David Ortega has been um, ridiculously rigid on helping them at all. I think that where they are united, though, is that everybody recognizes that the situation they're in, it's untenable. It it can't continue. Um, They can access water from cities outside of Scottsdale. The haulers can go to other cities and get water, but that takes way longer. It's way more expensive. And any of those cities could cut them off at any time. And so what they see is their options are starting to get narrower and narrower. And I think they're running the risk that come summer, there's no water. So all of them really acknowledge, I think, that there needs to be some sort of solution and they need water. And I think that if Scottsdale and the county could agree on some sort of plan, the people up there are not going to stop that plan from going through, even if they have potential qualms about it. Right. But as you say, the the prospect of Scottsdale and, and Maricopa County getting together, kind of kind of dicey at this moment. Looks a little dim at the moment, I would say. But again, you know, this is politics. And I think that we've seen both the city and the county take really strong stances on this. That doesn't mean that behind the scenes, there won't be more discussions in the coming weeks and that one or both of them might not soften a little bit. All right. That is Sasha Hupka with the Arizona Republic. Sasha, thanks for your insights. Thanks so much for having me. Today marks a month since Turkey and Syria were hit with a series of devastating earthquakes. With me via Skype for our weekly look at some of the key global stories in the coming days is the BBC's Jonathan Fruin. And Jonathan, let's start with those earthquakes. What's the latest on how people in those countries are doing? 
Well, sadly, the chances of finding any further survivors have fallen to zero this far after the disaster. But that said, there was something of a miracle last week when a dog was pulled alive from the rubble in Hatay in Turkey after being buried for 23 days. More than 50,000 people are confirmed to have lost their lives in the disaster and thousands more people are still missing. Those who survived the earthquakes are obviously facing the enormous challenge of trying to rebuild their lives. And for many, their homes have been totally destroyed. At least a million and a half people are now homeless in Turkey alone, according to the UN. Many live in tents near their old homes. One survivor recently poignantly wrote to one of my colleagues who had been reporting on the earthquakes that those of us who are now alive will stay under the rubble until the day we die. Psychologists say the survivors of such a traumatic event will be going through phases. The initial shock, anxiety and fear gets replaced with a state of denial. And whilst it's not easy to cope with the trauma on this sort of scale, experts say expressing feelings and thoughts about what's been experienced is a good first step towards healing. But the concern is that if psychosocial support isn't in place for those in need during the grief process, people can end up with serious disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder, depression and substance abuse. So a lot of support's needed, and it may be a struggle to get all of that in place given the scale of what's just happened. Right. And Jonathan, there's a lot of attention now being placed on buildings that collapsed during those earthquakes that maybe shouldn't have? Well, that's right. More than 160,000 buildings collapsed or were severely damaged in Turkey by the quakes. And that's raised questions about whether the natural disaster's impact was made worse by human failings. For years, experts warned that endemic corruption and government policies meant that many new buildings were unsafe. Turkey's government has said that at least 600 people are in under investigation over buildings that collapsed and around 200 suspects, including construction contractors and property owners, have been arrested. And among those detained is a mayor of one of the towns close to where the quakes hit. Opposition parties and some construction experts accused Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's administration of failing to enforce building regulations and trying to divert overall blame for the disaster. What they say is that government policies have been allowing a so-called amnesty for contractors with who avoided building regulations in order to encourage construction boom, including in earthquake-prone regions. Mr Erdogan has admitted shortcomings, but has appeared to blame fate for the scale of the disaster. On a recent visit to the region, he said such things have always happened. It's part of destiny's plan. But Mr Erdogan's future is on the line after 20 years in power. Elections are on the horizon later this year, and his pleas for national unity appear to have gone unheeded. At football matches recently, fans have been heard to be chanting things like, Erdogan resign and lies, lies, lies. Mm. Now that's happening in a country where outright criticism has been relatively rare in recent years. Right. So, Jonathan, let's stick with Turkey for just a moment. There are talks later this week between that country and uh, Finland and Sweden about those countries' bids to join NATO. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Let's rewind a little bit to begin with. Sweden and Finland are both countries with a long history of wartime neutrality and staying out of military alliances. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine and their proximity to Russia led to a major shift in public opinion in the countries early last year, with support for joining the NATO Western Military Alliance rising dramatically. Now, for Finns, events in Ukraine were a reminder of history. The Soviets invaded Finland in late 1939. But for more than three months, the Finnish army put up fierce resistance despite being heavily outnumbered. They avoided occupation but did end up losing around 10% of their territory. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, Finns took a look at their 800-mile border with Russia and wondered if something similar could happen with them. Sweden had also felt endangered in recent years with several reported airspace violations by Russian military aircraft. So both countries applied to join NATO, which would mean in the event of an invasion under NATO's Article 5, an attack on one member state is viewed as an attack on all, and military support would therefore be offered from other NATO members to deal with the invasion. Now, it's worth noting that Russia is vehemently opposed to these countries joining the alliance. Vladimir Putin believes expansion of NATO is a direct threat to his country's security. So Sweden and Finland joining will be viewed as a provocation. And Turkey clearly holds the key to those two countries joining NATO, right? 
That's right. All other NATO members except Hungary have given their blessing, but any member can veto new joiners, and President Erdogan has been holding out. Back in January, there was a controversial series of protests in Sweden, including the burning of a Koran outside the Turkish embassy in Stockholm that angered the Turkish president. At the time, Turkey cancelled talks with Sweden and Finland, and it looked as though negotiations might be kicked into the long grass until after Turkey's elections in June, but they are set to resume this week. Sweden, Finland and Turkey signed a memorandum on steps towards Turkish ratification at a NATO summit in Madrid last year, but Turkey's foreign minister recently said that Turkey has, quote, not seen satisfactory steps from Sweden on the implementation of the Madrid memorandum. Turkey accuses Sweden of harbouring what it considers members of terrorist groups. Now, the Swedish government plans to formally decide later this week on a long plan proposal to make it illegal to be part of or to endorse a terrorist organisation, which is one aspect of the Madrid agreement. The US and other NATO countries are hoping that the two Nordic countries can become members of the alliance at a NATO summit due to be held in July in Lithuania's capital Vilnius. But while Turkey signalled that it could approve Finland's application, it's given no assurances that it will give Sweden's bid the green light by then. Talks this week might help move things along. As regards the other holdout on the two countries bid Hungary, despite some reservations from Prime Minister Viktor Orban, lawmakers from his party indicated it will be supportive of membership and a parliamentary vote is likely to take place in the second half of this month. All right. So, Jonathan, finally, uh, closer to home for you, a major summit uh, between France's President Emmanuel Macron and Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, coming up in Paris on Friday. Yes, it's the first full-scale summit between the two nations since 2018. And over the last few years, relations between the two countries have been, shall we say, frosty. The aftermath of Brexit has caused significant challenges to the relationship. And I think it's fair to say that there was a degree of mistrust between Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson when he was prime minister. Things didn't seem to improve much in the short period when Liz Truss was in charge. She was asked during her leadership campaign last summer whether Emmanuel Macron was a friend or foe and responded by saying that the jury was out. President Macron responded to those remarks by saying that the UK, quote, is a friendly nation regardless of its leaders, sometimes in spite of its leaders. Mm. Now, when actually in office, Liz Truss did say that Emmanuel Macron was a friend, but the incident sort of set the tone. Now, that said, plans for a British France, uh, Britain-France summits me to take place in 2023 were announced during Liz Truss's premiership and finalised after Rishi Sunak was in office in January this year. So this week's meeting is definitely a sign of thawing relations between Britain and its key European Union allies since the Boris Johnson era. All right, that is the BBC's Jonathan Fruin in London. Jonathan, thanks as always. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Author Roald Dahl's books are getting a bit of a rewrite. The late author's estate and publisher are going through his works and taking out words and phrases that some readers may find offensive. For example, the character Augustus Gloop from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory will no longer be described as enormously fat. Instead, he'll be called enormous. Similar edits are being made to other books by Dahl. His works include James and the Giant Peach, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and Matilda. His estate told the Associated Press that it worked with the publisher to make sure that Dahl's, quote, wonderful stories and characters continue to be enjoyed by all children today. But the move has proven controversial, with a lot of people calling it a form of censorship. My next guest falls mainly in that camp. Patricia Jimenez is a high school librarian in the Valley. I spoke with her earlier and asked what she makes of this effort to go back through Dahl's books and change out some of the language. You know, it's been a real emotional journey for me. Um, because when I first heard of it, I was like, okay, I see what you're trying to do here. You're trying to make things more inclusive and and make them better. But the more I thought about it, the more uneasy I felt about it because I feel like it's 
a slippery slope towards censorship. And because I do not support censorship in any way, shape, or form, I think I have to kind of stand with, okay, sure, you're going to make these books less mean to people, but in doing so, you're altering it, and the original author has no say in it, and so I'm going to put that toward the the negative side of the scale. Hmm. Is it different to you in any way that they're changing words as opposed to changing plots or characters or storylines or anything like that? Not really. I think if they were doing plots and storylines, that would be even worse. And I know that the few things that I've read, you know, they're trying very much not to change the books. And I, I don't have um I don't have a great love of Dahl's work. Like I've I think I read some as a child and I'm of course familiar with it, but it's not beloved to me. Um, but I was speaking to a friend and she was not at all happy about this decision because that's one of the things that in her mind she loves about his work is that it's biting and it's sharp. And I think when I've spoken to other people in the past about his stuff, that seems to be why they sort of love it, that it wasn't like reading something to their children that was uh, saccharine and overly sweet. Right. I mean, there's a book in which a head of a school refers to all kids as maggots. I mean, that's, you know, that's not saccharine. No, not at all. And I have to say, like, on the other side of that, is this a book I would choose to read in a classroom to a group of school children? Absolutely not. And that is my right, right? That's that's the the core of the censorship argument is you don't have to like the book and you don't have to read the book. And if we want to make that argument for, you know, LGBTQ plus books, and we want to make that argument for books with BIPOC protagonists, then we have to walk the walk and say that same thing about books like these. But why does Dahl get the opportunity to sanitize the things he wrote? That's like another piece of of what's happening in my brain is, okay, so he wrote some things that were maybe not okay by our standards today that possibly were in his day. But why does he get to, why does his estate, why does his publisher get to clean that all up and make it go away? I mean, do you think that other authors or the estates of other authors could potentially look at this and say, huh, I mean, if it's if Roald Dahl's doing this, maybe Dr. Seuss's books should have this or maybe Mark Twain's book should have this? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's dangerous as well, because those books should be if they're read, that should be part of the conversation like this is because that's also sanitizing our past. Right. When we're like, okay, well, we're just going to clean this up and we're not going to use these words anymore because we don't use them now, but we used to use them and we need to have that conversation because we need to not forget the way things used to be. Does it make it any better to you that the publisher says it will continue to print 
the original version. So for readers who want to read the original and not the cleaned up version, they can still do that? Yes and no. The cynical part of me feels like that's just capitalism. Like they were like, oh no, some people are mad that we're doing this, so we'll just keep them both. Because that was a reaction. That wasn't the original plan. And I know that there have been multiple you know, film versions of his books. That's your opportunity to, to adapt and to update without erasing what was already there. I'm not saying we shouldn't change his works for him. I'm saying we shouldn't change his works for us. Would it be any different in your mind if he were still alive and he had made the decision to update his books as opposed to his estate and the publisher? 100%. Um, When I heard about this, my mind immediately went back to the summer when Lizzo, in response to her fans, changed the lyrics in one of her songs because she had a word that to some people is an ableist slur against those with disabilities. And, you know, she took that feedback and she said, you know what, you're right. That's not what my intention was, but I don't want anybody feeling bad about themselves listening to my music. That's not my intention. So she made that decision. And I think she had every right to do that as the artist. So yeah, if Dahl were still alive and he, you know, was talking to his his grandchildren or his great grandchildren, they were like, "This is kind of mean." And he said, "You know what? You're right. It is mean, isn't it? I'm going to change it. I would, yeah. It's his work." And I guess another piece of all this is not just like you don't have to read this if you don't like it, but also, are we still teaching this in classrooms? And and if so. Why? Because there are so many amazing authors out there, children's authors, you know, BIPOC authors, writing amazing children's literature. I just don't see, I don't see any reason for the canon anymore. I'm going to get hate mail for that. (laughs) Um, But I really feel like we should be challenging the canon as educators, maybe as parents, As readers in general, we should be challenging the canon every time we turn around. So you're saying instead of maybe cleaning up works from the past, maybe instead just look for something a little more recent that might even be better and doesn't need to be cleaned up. Exactly. Exactly. All right. That is Patricia Jimenez, a high school librarian in Phoenix. Patricia, thanks for your time and your insights. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Arizona has a state bird, the cactus wren, and a state tree, the palo verde. We even have a state gemstone, turquoise. But what about an official state smell? The show's Sativas Peterson explains. New Mexico's Senate Bill 188, which would grant the state an official aroma, passed the Senate with a 31 to 4 vote. It now moves on to the House. If passed, And if the governor signs the bill into law, New Mexico's official smell will become green chilies roasting over an open flame. That got us wondering, what might Arizona's state smell be? So last week, we asked our listeners. Hi there, my name is Amanda Dirksmeyer, and I am calling to put in my two cents for what I think the state smell of Arizona should be. Petrichor 
because petrichor is the word that describes the smell of rain. And there is nothing like that smell when you've lived in Arizona and it hasn't rained in a long time. And then all of a sudden you walk out and it hits you and it just smells so good. My name is Cece. Basically the first monsoon rain of the season. It's that like dusty, sweat cement smell. Uh, thanks so much. Hi, this is Tim Snyder. I was calling with regard to the official smell. When I think of Arizona, I think of the smell of citrus blossoms in the springtime as the weather is getting warmer and hotter. So petrichor was a popular response, as were spring's orange blossoms. But this listener had a different suggestion. Elote, grilled Mexican street corn. My name is Aaron Wilson from Mesa, Arizona. It is roasted corn specifically elote. You have this incredible medley of flavors where it is roasted corn, obviously. But then there's other seasonings that are applied during that process. It's usually spread with butter and mayo and usually cotija cheese. And then sometimes adding on chili powder and salt and lime juice. Great suggestions. But there was a clear winner a scent that was suggested more than any other, a smell that seems to bring even the most oppositional of Arizonans together. Hi, I'm a third-generation native of Arizona. I think it absolutely has to be creosote, the creosote bush after it rains in the desert. Hi there. I think it should be the smell of creosote bush or chaparral after a rain. I think Arizona's state smell should be the creosote bush after the rain. My suggestion would be the smell of desert rain that comes from the creosote bush. The state smell would have to be either stinky canal water or uh, creosote after rain. Stinky canal water aside, our hands-down winner, the creosote bush after the rain. The leaves of the creosote bush secrete oil when the plant is dry, but when it rains, those oils are released into the air. Some describe it as a little bit smoky or spicy. Think camphor and dust. But most say it is the smell of desert rain itself. Perhaps Arizona politicians should consider pumping this scent into the crowd at their next town hall meeting because this is the wonderful, fragrant, earthy smell that seems to unite us. It's also one of the oldest living things in the world. Heat and drought tolerant, the creosote bush has been residing here since the last ice age. Not too bad, Arizona. For KJZZ's The Show, I'm Sativa Peterson. All right, that'll do it for this Monday edition of the show. You think we got it right there? You think that's the state smell? Sure. You would say the, the smell of the grass at spring training game, right? <laughs> that would be good. But that's not unique to Arizona. Really. Certainly. So it's tough to, it's tough to say that. <laughs> Arizona and or Florida, I guess. Right. I mean, it's, it's tough to go wrong with creosote after the rain. It's, it's a beautiful one. It's a good one. It's it true. One. All right. We'll leave it at that. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. Thanks for joining us. 
That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody for Lauren Gilger and Steve Goldstein. Thanks for listening today.